Well, grab your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 5. When I was growing up, I was usually exhausted on Sunday mornings. And I would like to say that I was exhausted on Sunday mornings because I'd been up all night reading my Bible and praying piously and you know, preparing to worship with God's people. Sadly, that was not the case. That would be uh, slightly inaccurate, to say the least. Rather, the reason I was usually exhausted on Sunday morning was PBS. Now, some of you are thinking, PBS, is that some kind of medical condition that prevents you from sleeping at night? No, no, not PBS, the PBS, the Public Broadcasting Service. How many of you all have watched PBS before in your life? A surprising number. PBS, so I kind of get the feeling that in East Tennessee, PBS is similar to NPR, that there's kind of this uneasy relationship folks in, uh, in the South have with NPR and PBS because they're generally perceived to be liberal um, politically. But this has nothing to do with politics. Um, I wasn't captivated by you know, heated current debates in the McLaughlin group or by Bill Moyer's pontification about liberal politics or even the uh, recently um, unemployed Charlie Rose. Rather, I exchanged time for sleep for time with Hyacinth Bouquet. Anyone know Hyacinth Bouquet? Amen. All right. I, I knew I liked you Albrights. <laughs> I'm an Anglophile, which means that I love all things British. When I walk down the hallway, I whistle God Save the Queen. Well, I don't, I don't whistle because I can't whistle, but I hum, or I sing God Save the Queen. And I'm particularly fond of British television. Procedural crime dramas, or the BBC News Hour, but especially British comedies. So, at the local PBS station where I grew up, beginning at 11 p.m. every Saturday night, and for the next three hours, they would show the most wonderful series of British comedies that you could imagine. Keeping up appearances. Uh, and there would be the Vicar of Dibley, of course. And, and I'm getting a bunch of blank stares right now. So write all this down and then Google it later, and then we can have a conversation about it. So, so why in the world am I talking about British comedy this morning? All of you are, I'm sure, asking. In fact, I'm beginning to ask that my, myself. I thought this introduction was going to go over a little better than apparently it is. Uh, but as we began our evening with Hyacinth Bouquet, and that's spelled B-U-C-K-E-T, by the way. Bucket? But it's not Bucket. It is the Bouquet residence. So you see, Hyacinth, she was attempting to climb the strict English social order. She came from humble origins, but she was determined to make something of herself. And so at the opening credits, you would see Hyacinth dusting her bookshelf with a feather duster. And right there in the middle was a book that some of you may have heard of, called Modern Etiquette, by a British lady named, look, there it is right there, Moira Bremner. Now, Moira, why in the world is she writing a book about modern etiquette? Well, things had shifted dramatically from Victorian England into the 1990s in England and, of course, in the United States. And so what was proper etiquette during the reign of Queen Victoria was no longer proper etiquette during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And Hyacinth, more than anything else in the world, was going to make sure that she was abiding by proper etiquette. Now, now what did that mean? That, mean? that meant when she had her famed candlelight suppers, every candle was in the right place, it was the right height, every single serving was laid out exactly as it was supposed to be, there wasn't a fork or a spoon or a napkin or a place card out of place. Everything was just so, just as Moira had instructed in modern etiquette. And certainly there wouldn't be a flower petal even that was askew. And if you were wearing skinny jeans and a flannel shirt with an unshaven face, if you were a hipster, you probably wouldn't be welcome at one of, I'm sorry guys, you probably wouldn't be welcome at one of Hyacinth's candlelight suppers. Here in Luke chapter 5, 
Jesus knows a thing or two about modern etiquette, particularly wedding etiquette. And so as we turn to our passage this morning, let's bear in mind that Jesus' message is not, uh, is not humorous necessarily. It's, it's not concerned with keeping up appearances as Hyacinth was. Rather, Jesus' message is one of perpetual, unending relevance for his church and for his people. Let's read this together. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be, must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. I'm going to give you the main point, I think, of this passage for this morning, and then I'll give you a, an outline and kind of explain how we're going to do things today, because we're going to do them a little differently than we normally would. The main point of this passage, I think, is this. Religion, which is self-centered and self-justifying, is incompatible with the gospel. Genuine, saving religion, and by that we mean faith in Jesus, results in a life of joyous living because of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. I'll say that one more time. Religion which is self-centered and justifying is incompatible with the gospel. Genuine saving religion, genuine saving faith in Jesus results in a life of joyous living because of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. There are going to be three points this morning to our sermon. First of all, we're going to look at a new wardrobe and new wine. Second of all, we're going to look at modern etiquette. And then third, we're going to look at life with the bridegroom. So if you like to have notes, if you like to have structure, that'll help guide our time together this morning. Now, as we begin, we're actually going to work through this passage from end to beginning. And that's not normally how we do things and normally how I do things. Normally we'll do things in kind of a chronological fashion, but I think that things will be a little easier to understand if we do it in this order. So actually, we're going to begin in verse 36, where Jesus begins these parables. And the first parable he tells is about your wardrobe, about old garments and new garments. Now, as we begin these parables about garments and wine, we have to note that it's oftentimes easy to get lost in the parable. Uh, some parables are more detailed than others. This is just more of an explanatory note to convey what he was saying about the wedding feast. So, so don't get hung up on clothes and wine, because that's not really the point that Jesus is, is making here. So verse 36, he begins, and he says this, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new won't match the old. Now, to you and I, this makes sense. This is just common sense. There's nothing particularly profound about this. And, and I suspect that this would have been common sense for the people that Jesus was speaking to at the time as well. This is not some particular insight about how it is that we mend old clothes that Jesus is making. I once had a, had a shirt. Um, my wife, I'm sure, remembers this shirt. It's no longer in my possession. Um, but this shirt, I mean, it was an old shirt. And I, I recognize that old is a relative term, right? I think, uh, Wayne, where are you, Wayne? Wayne has, like, socks older than I am. Um, 
So it was an old shirt from me, right? It was a shirt that my parents got when they went on a trip when I was in elementary school. And so this thing had hung with me for 15 or so years. There were holes in the front. There were holes in the back. It was light blue, which was faded. So it was really of an indeterminate color by the point we finally got rid of it. It had bleach stains on it. It even had like holes in the armpit. Which, I'm sorry, underarms. That's the appropriate way to say that, right? It had holes in the underarms. And I think that's the part that particularly offended my wife. Uh, but I love this shirt. It seems week after week, year after year, this shirt made its way into my, into my chest of drawers. Now, it would have been foolish. It would have been ridiculous for me to take this shirt, not just because it's pink. Y'all like my pink shirt this morning? Not just because it's pink and the other one's blue, but it would have been ridiculous for me to take a new shirt and to cut a piece of cloth from it in order to try and patch the old shirt, right? First of all, they're, they're not going to match. Second of all, I'm going to ruin the new shirt if I do that. Thirdly, when, when we wash the old garment that's been patched, this is in the day before pre-shrunk fabric. When we wash it, what's going to happen? That new piece of cloth is going to shrink, and it's going to tear away from the old piece of cloth. So in the end, we would have accomplished absolutely nothing good, and the only thing we would have done is frustrated ourselves, and we would have ruined a perfectly good new shirt. Jesus goes on, and he starts talking about wine. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. Now we're all good Southern Baptists, right? Some of you are chuckling. Some of you didn't grow up Southern Baptists, so you don't know what I'm about to talk about. Since we're all good Southern Baptists, I'm sure none of us knows anything about wine or about wine production. Can I get an amen? No. Oh, man. Okay. Y'all are some of those modern Southern Baptists. Okay. Well, well, just I'm just going to assume you don't know anything about wine production. Okay? For the sake of argument, let me tell you a little bit about how wine is made. After the grapes have been pressed, and that's usually done by people's bare feet traditionally. Mm, delicious, right? Okay. The juice is then collected, and it's stored without any pasteurization process. Okay, so, so this is the reason. Pasteurization is the reason when you go to Europe or when you go to Nicaragua with us in Central America, where do they put the milk? On the shelf, right beside the cereal. They don't put it in the refrigerator because it's been pasteurized. There, there's, there's nothing in that milk that's going to do anybody any harm. All the bacteria has been killed. It's not even actually milk anymore, okay? It's just colored water by the time they're done with the process. The only reason they put it in the Refrigerators because we're, we're finicky Americans and we can't stand the thought of having milk from a shelf. But through this pasteurization process in milk and other dairy products and juice, all the bacteria is removed so it doesn't spoil, right? Well, grape juice that's turned into wine isn't pasteurized. It's taken and it's placed inside of a, a cask or inside of bottles or in this case inside of wineskins. What happens when you place this unpasteurized foot-stomped grape juice into a wineskin. All the bacteria in there from the grapes and from your feet, they start to mingle together and fermentation takes place because of the bacteria, they, they metabolize the sugar and then they give off gases. What happens when you, well not you, what happens when bacteria <laughs> gives off gas in a container, starts to expand, right? Have you ever driven up in the, in the mountains with a bottle of soda in your car that's not been opened, or a can of soda, if you go up high enough, what's going to happen to that can of soda? Right, it's going to blow up because the pressure changes inside. It can't, can't take the pressure inside anymore. And so the same thing happens with these wine skins. That's why they used skins to ferment the, uh, the grape juice to make wine, because there was elasticity. Now, what are these skins? Where do they come from? They're small animals, usually goat, sheep, and they cut them up, and they sew them together, and they clean them real good. So when you take a a swig from them, you don't get like a goat hair in your, in your throat or anything. But these skins, when they're new, they're really stretchy. And so as the wine ferments, it begins to stretch and it begins to expand. Now, if we have an old wine skin that's, that's it's, it's well past its sell-by date, it's had a good life, it's had a good run, been to a lot of nice candlelight suppers at Hyacinth's and Ultimately, what's going to happen if we put new wine into this old, worn-out wineskin? That new wine, it's going to do what wine does, right? It, it's going to ferment. It's going to expand. But that, 
that skin's not going to expand with it, is it? Eventually, it's going to pop, and you're going to spill wine everywhere. Now, Jesus, in this conversation about these two parables, the, the, the cloth, the new cloth, and the, the new wine, what is he not concerned with? He's not concerned about the old garment, and he's not concerned about the old wineskin. He's concerned about the new garment, and he's concerned about the new wine. If you, if you read through this passage, that's going to be the recurring theme. New, 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 new. Over and over and over and over again. Jesus, though he was ancient and eternal, was new. His message was new. His discipleship was new. So the point Jesus is making here is this. You cannot put the new covenant into the old. You cannot put Jesus' new discipleship into the rigid, self-centered, self-justifying structure of the Pharisees. You cannot put the sweet new wine of the gospel, which is written on men's hearts, into the old wineskin of the law which is written on stone tablets. And the moment we try to do any one of these things, and heaven knows we try to do this. I mean, how many of you all have spent more than 15 years of your life in a church? By, by show of hands. Okay, that's, that's the vast majority of you all. Churches love change, right? No, they hate it. This is one, I, I am a congregationalist. Through and through. We're going to talk about congregationalism and all that fun stuff in the coming months. I believe in congregationalism, which is what Southern Baptists are, which is what all Baptists are. We believe that ultimately the congregation is the final authority on earth. But man, I would really like to be a bishop some days. Because you know what the bishop does? He comes in and he says, we're doing X, Y, and Z. It doesn't matter what you say. Because people don't like change. You don't like change. I certainly don't like change. The moment we try to ram the new covenant into the old, we lose the gospel. We've destroyed a perfectly good new garment, trying to patch up a t-shirt that's disintegrating and falling apart, like my beloved shirt. Or we've tried to take new wine and preserve it in old wineskins, and the result is that good new wine is lost. It's spilled on the ground, and it's of no use to anybody. You want to be ineffective for the kingdom? You want to be ineffective for the sake of the gospel? Try and take the new wine of the gospel and put it in old wineskins, and it's not going to do anybody any good. Well, then we get to verse 39, and this is kind of where I thought it would be a little easier to understand if we did these two in reverse, because this is an interesting passage, right? Jesus is talking about new, 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 new garment, new wine, new wineskins, and then in verse 39, we read this, and no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Well, well come on, Jesus, you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? Well, which one is it? New wine? Old wine? Well, I think we need to ask this question first as we try to understand what's taking place here. Someone says, for he says, the old is good. Who in the world, or who in this particular context, would say something like that in response to Jesus? I think that's where we're going to find our answer about this interesting little phrase in verse 39. Let's go back to the beginning of the passage now, bearing that in mind. And we're going to turn now to Jesus' modern wedding etiquette. Verse 33, it begins, And they said to him. Who is the they being referred to here? If you look up, you recognize that we're still in Levi's house. We've just got done having a meal with Levi and all the other tax collectors. And apparently, the Pharisees have invited themselves over to dinner, which really amuses me, cracks me up, because in any other circumstance, the Pharisees wouldn't be caught dead at a tax collector's house. 
But Jesus is here. Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors. We don't like tax collectors. We don't like Jesus. Let's see what's going on. So the Pharisees have somehow made their way into Levi and Jesus' party. And they said to him, verse 33, continuing, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, eat and drink, Jesus. Note, first off, there's no question here. That's a period at the end of your sentence, right? Not a question mark. This isn't the Pharisees seeking a pearl of wisdom from Jesus. The Pharisees aren't trying to have a deeper understanding of the things of God. What is this? This is an accusation against Jesus. So not only have the Pharisees invited themselves, they've crashed the party. Now they're hurling accusations at the one for whom the party has been thrown. Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, they eat and they drink. What's going on, Jesus? What kind of disciples do you have here, Jesus? Not only do they lob an accusation, but, but it's funny that they appeal to John the Baptist. John the Baptist and the Pharisees, they're not friends. They're not buddies. They haven't had a very chummy relationship ever since John called them what? A brood of vipers. But when it suits their purposes, when it's convenient for them, as they try and lob an accusation against Jesus, they're all ready. They're, they're, they're more than willing to have some type of alliance with John the Baptist and with his disciples. So you see the contrast that's being laid out here. We have the Pharisees' disciples, and we have John's disciples, and they do one thing, namely fasting and praying. And then we have Jesus' disciples. And they're not fasting. They're not praying like the other disciples are. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're eating. They're drinking. They're having a good time at Levi's house. The contrast that's being drawn here is a contrast, once again, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This is what Jesus was talking about with garments and with wine. You see, John the Baptist, he was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last of the forerunners of Jesus. So he fits very squarely into an old covenant mindset along with the Pharisees. And in the Old Testament, fasting was a symbol of mourning. Mourning over what? Mourning possibly over the Lord's judgment against the nation. Mourning for your sins individually. Mourning for the sins of the people. But mourning was only commanded on one day out of the year. One day. That's the only time the Lord commanded the people to mourn and to fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's commanded in Leviticus chapter 16. On one day, the people of God were commanded to fast and to mourn, grieve the sins of the nation. And that's it. Every other uh, encouragement for fasting in the Old Testament is not, is not commanded, it's voluntary. You see, fasting in the Old Testament, by and large, was a matter of the heart. It wasn't a requirement that was laid down upon people except for that one day of the year. Now, if, if we know anything about Pharisees, what do Pharisees do? They, they, they make rigid structures, right? Pharisees, they were concerned with meticulously keeping the Old Testament law. And in order to meticulously keep the Old Testament law, what did they start to do? They started to put up fences around the law. They created a law of their own. They didn't even want to get close to transgressing the law. So they would guard themselves with these fences. And so the result of that is there was a law that wasn't given by God. It was a law that had instead been made by man. Now we can glean a little bit about the common practice of the Pharisees from the New Testament as well. You remember uh, later on in Luke when Jesus uh, speaks about the tax collector and the Pharisee who've gone to the temple to pray, right? And the tax collector, he's there, he's just beating his chest. His eyes are cast down and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. How does the Pharisee pray, however? He stands there proudly and he speaks loudly so everybody can hear him and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like sinners, like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all I have. 
So apparently by the time Jesus comes around, it was the practice of the Pharisees to require fasting, not once, a, re, require fasting, not once a year, but twice every week. And that's just one example of hundreds of examples of how the Pharisees had begun to teach the commandments of men as the law of God. So they had this rigid Old Testament structure to guard them against this. And this is, quite frankly, one area where I can kind of be sympathetic towards the Pharisees. You don't often find sympathy towards Pharisees, right? But I can understand the motivation behind doing that. Initially, when the Pharisees started to do this, what did they want to do? They wanted to obey the law. It's good to obey the law. Don't ever let anybody tell you otherwise. But when we start to say, thus saith the Lord, and they're the words of men and not the words of God, then we've transgressed the law ourselves. In our zeal to obey the law, we have made something a law that God has not said is a law. And really, we've spoken on behalf of God. We have taken the God or the mantle of the Lord upon ourselves. Verse 34. Continue on, Jesus says to them, in response to this accusation, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? How many of you have ever been to a wedding before? All the hands go up? Wow, not many of you, apparently. Okay. <laughs> For those a few of you who have been to a wedding, have you ever fasted? Um, before the wedding, or not like if you had surgery or something. That, that's a different, con- a different context. But, you know, just on a normal, normal day, nothing, nothing strange going on. Have you ever fasted before the wedding? This means yes, this means no, okay. Have you ever fasted during the, the wedding banquet or the reception afterwards? Right, I mean, that's just, that's just crazy, right? They pay all of this money to have all of this nice food. Well, by golly, I'm going to eat some of it. I'm going to eat more at the wedding feast than I am, hopefully, any other day of the week, right? We show moderation every other day, so on holidays and at wedding banquets and so on, we can indulge a little bit. Well, well, that is just as foreign to Jesus' audience as it is to us today. In fact, it may be more foreign to them, given, given what type of weddings were thrown and, and the length and the duration of celebration during weddings in the ancient Near East that, that span not just days, but even span weeks. I mean, this is a big deal. There's all kinds of rejoicing. They're having a good time. There's a lot of dead sheep, and there's a lot of empty wine, wineskins at the end of a wedding in the ancient Near East. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but if you're planning on having a wedding, I have a little tip for you, okay? Why are we laughing? This is it. Please have food for your guests while you finish up your wedding pictures. Man, a lot. Okay? I, I know, I know. It's your big day, and, and everyone that's there is just so thankful to be part of it. Blah, 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 blah. But even more thankful for being part of your big day, your guests would be thankful for a shrimp cocktail. Okay? <laughs> so please, have proper etiquette and provide some food for your guests while you wrap up your pictures. Okay, that's done. Moving on. So a wedding is a big deal. There's a huge celebration. There's a a huge feast that's taking place. And it's interesting because this is apparently new information for the Pharisee. See, in your Bible, it probably says, as as the header for this section, something like a question about fasting, right? Or something along the lines with with fasting. But, But Jesus says, This isn't about fasting. We're not talking about fasting. We're talking about weddings. Pharisees, you've completely missed the point. You thought you were at a party thrown by this sinful tax collector for this man that you're trying to kill, but you're not at a party thrown by a sinful tax collector for a man you're trying to kill. You're at a wedding feast. Time to get with the game, folks. This is a different world. It is a brave new world, Pharisees. We're out with the old, and we are in with the new. I can just imagine the Pharisees as Jesus gives this response about being at a wedding. You know, they're, they're walking around and, and they're, they're, I'm sure, shocked about his turning the question 
to discussions about proper etiquette at weddings, and they kind of have this holier-than-thou attitude. They, I imagine they're all very tall, and they have very long noses, and they're just always looking down their noses at everybody because they're holier-than-thou. And not only are they holier-than-thou, this may very well have been one of the two days where they fasted. So they're holier-than-thou, and they're hangry at the same time. They're probably starving because they haven't had anything to eat, and so they're a, they're a little miffed that they're having this conversation at this point. But Jesus, he doesn't back down, does he? Because Jesus never backs down, especially when it comes to Pharisees. This is, I love reading about the accounts of Jesus and the Pharisees because I kind of feel like this is where I am probably most like Jesus. I'm not like, most like, I'm not like Jesus in a lot of respects, but, but leaning in to a uh, difficult conversation is one of those areas where I think I, I excel. Um, <laughs> kind of kind of making an uncomfortable situation even a little more uncomfortable <laughs> to prove a point. I'm okay with that. To each his own. But Jesus, he leans into them. He clues them in in verse 35. We're having a wedding feast now, but in the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And then they will fast in those days. Jesus says to the, to the Pharisees, you're talking about fasting now, and we're at a wedding feast. Don't worry. There'll be time for fasting. Now, the folks who are assembled in Levi's house, I don't think they understood what Jesus was talking about there, but we, of course, have the, the benefit of hindsight, and it's very obvious what Jesus is talking about. What was he talking about? He's talking about his crucifixion. He's talking about his death. There's going to be plenty of time to grieve after Calvary's cross. So you can grieve and you can fast, and certainly they would have. Maybe they would for spiritual reasons. If nothing else, I'm sure they would have fasted because they wouldn't have had an appetite anyways. After all the sorrow and anguish of the crucifixion, after what may be unintentional fasting by Jesus' disciples, because the thought of food made them sick after the death of their Lord, after all of that, Sunday comes. Sunday came for Levi, and Sunday came for Simon Peter. Sunday came for all the rest of the disciples. And on that same day, as the disciples' sorrow and fasting and mourning was turning to rejoicing, the Pharisees, who I'm sure up until that point had been toasting their great success in ridding themselves of this pest Jesus, they've now find their appetites have gone. And their stomachs have turned sour. Because word on the street is Jesus' tomb is empty. Some folks say they've even seen him risen from the dead. This last section in Luke chapter 5 is really the, the culmination of everything that we've been driving towards. Is we've been looking at Jesus calling disciples and Jesus healing people. And then finally this question about fasting. It's the very pinnacle. Jesus has been driving at this the whole time. And what he's been driving at, what he's been painting, is a picture of what life with the bridegroom looks like. We've had the wedding feast. We've mourned. We've fasted. But Jesus lives again. And because Jesus lives, we can live with him. We're going to do just a really brief overview of Luke chapter 5 to get an idea of all of this set in its context and the, the great point that Jesus has been driving at. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus, in order to get some breathing room from all the crowds that have been pressing in on him, he asks a fisherman to put his boat out in the water. You know, and this fisherman, who is later identified as Simon Peter, he's already, he's done fishing for the day. He's cleaning his, cleaning his nets, he's packing up shop because it has been a particularly unsuccessful day out on the lake. They're out there. Jesus is preaching to the crowds from a boat. And when he's done, he sits down. And he instructs Simon Peter. I think it's funny there. He doesn't ask either. He, he tells him, Simon, put your net in the water over there. And Simon Peter, he's kind of exasperated, right? Because Jesus is a great preacher. And he's a really good guy. He's really, he's super holy. It's, it's apparent, it's obvious, but Jesus is not a fisherman, right? And so Jesus... You kind of do, you do you and I'll do me and we'll be, we'll be good. 
But Simon Peter, he's, he's polite. And so what does he do? He sticks the net in, and then there's just this load of fish that, that comes up to the point where it's beginning to break the net. So they call for help. They bring the fish in. And Peter's response, he doesn't turn and say, well, thanks, Jesus. That was really nice. And he's not even really just surprised, but he's fearful. Because Jesus has demonstrated his power and his authority and his holiness in such a marvelous way. This was not Jesus utilizing fishing techniques he learned from Bill Dance, or that Bill Dance. I was thinking they were on TV, any of the Bill Dances. This is, this is Jesus commanding nature, and it listens and obeys. Then we go on, and, and we have this account of a leper in verses 12 through 16, and and this man is full of leprosy. He's not just a little bit leprous. He's really leprous. He's got it bad. He's eaten up with leprosy. I don't think any of us have ever encountered someone who is full of leprosy. Um, some of you might have. Maybe a little leprous. But most of us, that, that's, we don't know what it means to be full of leprosy. But leprosy is a horrifying disease. And it's not just a physical disease, it's a social disease as well. It results in, in being ostracized, not just from the community, but it results in being sent away from the presence of God. Because it's defilement. It's unclean. It's impure. This is why uh, Moses and Aaron reacted in such anguish when God cursed their sister Miriam with leprosy. Because they knew that this was essentially a death sentence. Because Miriam was going to have to go where? Outside the camp. Out in the wilderness. Away from God's protecting hand. So the leper approaches Jesus, which he's really not supposed to do. And he says to him, Lord, if you, if you can, if you have the power, if you have the ability. No, no, he doesn't say any of those things. That's all assumed. The leper assumes Jesus is able to heal him. What does he say? He says, if you will, you can make me clean. It's not a question of ability. It's a question of desire. And it's a statement of fact. So what does Jesus do? Does he curse the man? Does he flee in terror? Does he take up a stone to hurl at him, to drive him away, lest... Jesus contract this feared disease of leprosy? No. Jesus, he stretches out his hand and he touches him, saying, I will be clean. Man, if you need some words to meditate on this afternoon, those four words, I will be clean. So what happens here? Rather than Jesus contracting leprosy, rather than him becoming defiled and impure, his holiness overwhelms all the impurity and all the defilement that this leper had within him. Jesus' holiness has the power to make the most defiled sinner clean. And we go on in verse 17 to 26. And Jesus, what does he do? He heals the helpless. There's a man here. He, he's, he can't do anything. His friends are having to carry him around on a bed. He's heard about Jesus. He's heard about some remarkable things that this guy is doing. And so he's like, well, he's my best shot. He's the only hope I've got. So they can't make their way into the building. What do they do? They wind up taking the roof off, which is remarkable in and of itself, and they drop him down right there. I'd like to imagine smack dab between Jesus and the Pharisees, right? Because the Pharisees, they're those people. This is, see, I think Baptists don't sit in the front row because they, they don't want to be like, you know, Pharisees. I'm not saying y'all are Pharisees, by, by the way, but I can just imagine Pharisees, they're the ones who are in the front of the classroom, right? And at the end of the day, they're the ones who raise their hands and say, um, teacher, you forgot to assign homework for us. So that's the kind of attitude that Pharisees have. So they're right there in the front row, picking at Jesus, trying to, trying to cause him to stumble and fall, and then all of a sudden, this man drops down as if from heaven in between the two of them. And so Jesus... He turns to this man. He's obviously a paralytic. I mean, he's being carried around on a bed, right? What, what else is going to be the issue? And what does he say to them? Say to him. He doesn't say, legs be healed. He doesn't say, you know, 
whatever brainstem function properly. No, instead, he says, your sins are forgiven you. Oh, man, that really got the Pharisees going, right? And they start muttering about he's speaking all these blasphemies. Why is that blasphemous? Because only God has the power to forgive sins. And so in declaring this man's sins forgiven, what is Jesus doing? He's saying, I am who? I'm God. This is my power. I have the power to forgive sins. And so once again, Jesus, because he likes to kind of lean into these awkward conversations with the Pharisees, he says, you know what, Pharisees? I'm not even going to do just that. In order to demonstrate my authority and my power, take up your bed. Walk out. And the man does it. Jesus, in the face of persecution, in the face of threats from, from really the people who had power over his life, what does he do? He doesn't back down from the opportunity to help the helpless and to do good. He leans into it. Instead, a man who's been paralyzed gets up and he walks again. A man who has been dependent upon others for his existence, for the water he drinks, for the food he eats, for his body being bathed. I mean, just dependent in every way upon someone else. Shows his dependence on Jesus. And as a result, Jesus tells him to get up and to walk. And then finally, in 27 to 32, where we find ourselves in Levi's house. Why do we find ourselves in Levi's house? Because Jesus was walking along on the road, and he saw Levi in his tax collector booth, and he said, come on, follow me. It's a surprisingly short story, right? I mean, we'd expect more from that account, given who Levi was. We'd expect a little bit more of an explanation, but, but we don't read of any type of exchange. It's not as if Jesus is, is there uh, having an argument with Levi, convincing him to leave all his wealth and prosperity behind and instead to come and follow him. He just says, Levi, follow me. And Levi walks along, and he leaves it all behind. Now, this is significant because Jesus calls the individual who is most despised in that society. Levi was a Jew, but he was a traitor to his people. He was a traitor to his nation because he worked for the Roman oppressors. And not only was he a traitor, but he defrauded his people. He stole from them so he could live in a life of luxury and so he could throw these fancy parties in his house. Of all the people that Jesus would call to follow him, Levi is the least likely. Levi is the one that the Pharisees think is off limits. He's out of bounds. He's a traitor to God's people, and therefore he's a traitor to God. But Jesus says, you come and follow me. So here in Levi's house, as we end Luke 5, Jesus sits not just with one tax collector, but an entire room full of tax collectors. And this, is, this party is the culmination, it's the end of an unlikely series of events. And so we have to consider, what does this mean for you and I today? It's not just a great story. I mean, it is a great story, but it's not just a great story. It's not, it's not just a moral lesson. It's not a morality tale for you and I. Perhaps you're like Simon Peter. You know, you're good at what you do, okay? You're well-trained. You know what you know, and you know what you know what you know. And quite frankly, you'd rather not have anyone tell you otherwise. Despite that, you're courteous, and you're courteous enough to humor your coworker or your neighbor or your wife, and so you'll come to church and you'll be respectful. You'll sit quietly and listen. You'll close your eyes and bow your head when God's people pray, and you might even sing a little, along a little bit as voices are lifted in adoration to God. And you'll do all that just so long as Jesus doesn't start telling you how to do what you know how to do. You know how to raise your kids. You know how to be a good husband. You know how to provide for your family. You know how to be a respectable, upstanding member of society. Well, just like Peter, Jesus has something for you. He has something greater than the sum of everything you know how to do. 
Instead of living to meet everyone's expectations and dying with a good reputation, Jesus calls you to follow him. And in following him, you'll experience wonders and sorrows and maybe even an ignoble death like Peter did. But at the end of your earthly life, you will count everything you gave up to follow Jesus as loss. And it will all be worth it. Maybe you're more like the leper. Perhaps there's something about you that society says is dangerous or society says is gross or wicked. Maybe you're full of defilement like that leper was full of leprosy. Well, just like that leper, all you have to do is come to Jesus and say to him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And I can guarantee you this. If you come to Jesus, and that is true of you, if your true desire is to look Jesus in the eye and say, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean, I know without a shadow of a doubt that his response to you will be, I will be clean. As we look at this passage of the leper, I think something is lost in translation. We, we read that Jesus reached out and he touched the man, but, but surely, we think, in the face of such horror, surely he reached out and touched him almost reluctantly. He, he turned his face away and he just rested his hands upon him and said, I will be clean, because, I mean, this is gross. It's disgusting. But that's not what happened. When Jesus says, I will be clean, you can almost picture him reaching out and, and grabbing the fingerless stump of that leper's hands. Then maybe the man, because he's not used to being touched, maybe he begins to draw back, unsure of what's happening and taking place. But Jesus, he keeps his hold. I will be clean. I will be clean. And perhaps with his other hand, Jesus reaches up and he touches his face. And for those of you who've never seen the effects of leprosy, I mean, you can Google it. I would encourage you to Google it when you get home. But he reaches up and he might very well touch a face that doesn't have ears. It doesn't have a nose, just has a hole. It doesn't have lips to smile with. Jesus, he touches that face and he says to him, I will be clean. Just like that leper, whatever your defilement is, Jesus comes to you. And he doesn't reluctantly touch you. He embraces you. And he says, I will be clean. Some of you are like that paralyzed man. You may not be physically paralyzed, but you are paralyzed by the circumstances of your life. Life is spinning out of control. Or maybe you're paralyzed because of anguish. Anguish about children who have wandered. Perhaps you're paralyzed because you fear for your own soul. Well, Jesus is the helper of the helpless. He is the one who comes along and he heals broken bodies. He is the one who opens blind eyes. He is the one who unstops deaf ears. He is the one who trades stony hearts for hearts of flesh. Come to Jesus and your broken body, your broken life can be made whole. Some of you are like Levi. You don't have any type of skin disease. You're, you're not lame. You don't have any type of outward uncleanness that will cause your shame. Instead, you have the choices that you've made. You have your allegiances. You have your circle of friends and of influence. And though you may be scum in the eyes of your people, in the eyes of your community, in the eyes of your family, With Jesus, living life with the bridegroom, you are made part of a new people. You are made part of a new community. You are made part of a new family where you are looked upon not as 
traitor, but you are looked upon as beloved brother, beloved sister in Christ. Finally, there's one last group here. Some of you think all of this is just a load. You do the right things, you go to church, you don't cuss, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't run around with girls that do. And you can't imagine why the church would want to have anything to do with traitorous cowards. You can't imagine why the church would want to have anything to do with those who cannot help themselves. God helps those who help themselves is your mantra. You can't imagine why the church would want anything to do with those who are disgusting and defiled, with those who are uneducated, smelly fishermen. You think the old wine is pretty good. Well, Jesus has a word for you, too. And this is what he says. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Rather, those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If that's you, let me warn you. You're in the most dangerous place anybody could possibly be. Because you have aligned yourself against the one who heals. You have aligned yourself against the one who makes clean. You are the, have aligned yourselves against the one who brings life, where only there is death. So my earnest prayer for you is that God would soften your heart. And rather than facing God's fiery condemnation at the end of this life, you would instead embrace this bridegroom. You would be clean. You would be healed. You would be made alive and whole. And you would be brought joyfully into the family of God. Brothers and sisters, the grave is empty. The bridegroom is alive and well. So let's live our lives joyfully because of him and for him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have come and you have turned the world's wisdom on its head. We thank you that you have come and you have taken defilement and made clean. You have taken death and made life. You have taken brokenness and made completeness. And would you continue by your spirit to do that good work in our lives and in your church here on Carroll Creek Road? in Johnson City, so that we might live lives for your glory because of the love you have shown us. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen.